they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, the 26th day of March. Um, we're in the fifth week of Lent. Sunday is Palm Sunday. We're coming to a, a rapid approach here to Easter. We want to really enter into these last days of Lent and really appreciate what the Lord is trying to do in us and through us for the praise of the glory of his name, that his kingdom would come and his will be done. And um, Terry's not with us today, but um, I'm sure he sends his angels, his guarding angel, and my guarding angel is certainly with me. So we're going to do a little um, scripture today. We're going to try and look at both the first reading from the book of Jeremiah for the fifth week of Lent, Friday, and also the Gospel of John. And then we want to talk about, um, about death. Is death the end of the story, or is there something beyond it? So, Jeremiah writes, and this is in Jeremiah 20, 10 through 13. I hear the whisperings of many, terror on every side. Denounce, let us denounce him. All those who were my friends are on the watch for any misstep of mine. Perhaps he will be trapped. Then we can prevail and take our vengeance on him. But the Lord is with me. Like a mighty champion, my persecutors will stumble. They will not triumph. In their failure, they will be put to utter shame, to lasting, unforgettable confusion. O Lord of hosts, you who test the just, who probe mind and heart, let me witness the vengeance you take on them. For to you, O Lord, I entrust my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. For he has rescued the life of the poor from the power of the wicked the word of the Lord. It's interesting here. The prophet is saying, terror on every side, denounce, denounce, let us denounce him. And he says, all who are my friends are against me. Now, this is, it, 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 it's very obvious that the, the Jeremiah is, you know, yes, this happened to Jeremiah, the prophet. And what's interesting is the prophets were treated. If you read the Old Testament prophets, the prophets who were truly speaking for God were treated the same way Jesus was treated. You know, it's kind of like, um, what did they call that? The foreshadowing, you know, if you're watching a movie and they, they have somebody say something, that's a foreshadowing of what's coming later on, right? Well, the Old Testament prophets, you know, God knew how his son was going to be treated when he sent him. It was no, you know, there was no um, revelation to God that Jesus was going to die on the cross. That was all. But, but the prophets suffered in the same way bef in, 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 in beforehand. And it's a, it's a prefiguring, as it were, of the sufferings of Christ and what he's going to go through for us. And even his friends. And, you know, when Jesus was betrayed, he's betrayed by one of his own apostles. Um, ten of them abandon him. You know, one of them actually betrays him, sells him. One of them denies him. Peter denies him. The others abandon him. But John stands at the foot of the cross. There's one apostle standing at the foot of the cross. And I think we need to remember that. And, and John, of course, um, is standing there with Mary. So if we stand with Mary, this is why, you know, Catholics, we don't worship Mary. We don't worship her at all. But, but we do go to the mother. Why? Because Mary knows what her son desires, and she can teach us. And she did perfectly what her son desired, and she did perfectly what God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desired. She only did God's will. And so we want to have the courage and strength to be able to stand through suffering, and Mary stood through suffering with her son. So she helps us. She helps us in our need. She's a good mother. 
And that's why, you know, and you know, Jesus gives us Mary as a mother when he's on the cross. He says to John, he, he says to Mary, woman, behold thy son. He doesn't say mother, he says woman. And that, that harkens back, by the way, he's not denigrating her. That harkens back to the woman of Genesis, the woman who was prophesied, who would be the one who would bring the Messiah and that God would put enmity between the woman and the devil. I will put enmity between thee, he says to the serpent, and the woman. So there would be an enmity. There would be a perfect woman whom the devil could never touch and never tempt, by the way. She would so much love God that he was, the, the devil was never allowed to come near to her. And that's, that's um, borne out, for the, by the way, in, in the book of Revelation, when the woman gives birth to the male child, and the woman, of course, represents Mary, that is Mary, you know, it's, yes, it represents the church, but it is Mary. And she gives birth, and then she flees to the desert where a place has been prepared for her. And the serpent goes after her. He can't get the child, so he goes after the woman. But she's given a pair of eagle wings on which to fly away. He can't get her. He can't get near her. So what does he do? He goes off to make war on the rest of her children, all of those who keep the commandments of God and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read that in Revelation 12. And so Mary is that woman. And John went and got Mary and brings her and tells her that, you know, Jesus has been arrested. So he stays with her throughout Christ's passion. So he's there at the foot of the cross. And so this is what we want to do. We want to go with Mary to the foot of the cross. But death isn't the end of that story. And we're going to talk about more about that later on in the show. But the reality is, is that we are going to suffer. The prophets suffered ever since sin came into the world. You know, it's interesting. I, I said to someone recently that, you know, God didn't make death. And they were like, well, wait a minute. You know, how can you say such a thing? You know, remember, God is God. And, and yeah, God is God. But he didn't make death. What does it say in the book of Wisdom? Well, in the book of Wisdom, chapter 2, verses, uh, I believe it's 23 and 24, it says, For God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. Did you catch that? God created man for incorruption and created him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy... Death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. So it's not God who made death. Death entered the world through the devil's envy because he tempted, out of envy, he tempted Adam and Eve to sin because he didn't like, the, he didn't like God's plan, and he didn't want man to have the position that God was giving him in, in, in God's, God's plan. And so, so we have this suffering comes into the world with death. Suffering sin and, with sin comes suffering and death. But all of that can be united to Christ and redeemed. The prophets weren't just suffering for the sake of suffering. They were suffering for, the, for God to, to bring his word. So what do we have in the gospel today? Now the gospel, today's gospel, is from John 10, 31 through 42. Oh, and just a word of Jeremiah. It's, it's like, well, you know, my enemies won't prevail over me. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you died on the cross. How can you say your enemies aren't going to? And see, again, is death the end of the story? Jesus is, that's that, that foreshadowing. My enemies won't prevail over me. But wait a minute, you died on the cross. Look at the horrible death you died. Didn't they prevail? No, my enemies were put to utter shame, lasting, unforgettable confusion. <laughs> 
So those who rebel against God are put to utter shame, and they're put to lasting unforgettable confusion because the, the devil is put to utter shame. He's put to lasting unforgettable confusion. And, and, and there's this hope. There's always this hope. Even remember last week we talked about the Psalms. Two weeks ago we talked about the Psalms that, that talk about the death of Jesus. And it, prophesy the Psalms that prophesy his sufferings. And yet if you read through the whole Psalm, there's this great hope. And here we have it again. O Lord of hosts, you who test the just, who probe mind and heart, let me witness the vengeance you take on them. For to you I entrusted my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has rescued the life of the poor from the power of the wicked. So you see, even if we suffer for a time, that suffering will come to an end. And there's, we praise the Lord even in the midst of suffering. We can praise the Lord because we suffer in union with Jesus. So what happens in the Gospel of John today, chapter 10? The Jews picked up stones, picked up rocks to stone Jesus. Excuse me. They picked up rocks to stone Jesus. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, We're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. You, a man, are making yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If it calls them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be put aside, can you say that the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world blasphemes because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not perform my Father's works, do not believe me. But if I perform them, even if you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may realize and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. They, then they again tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their power. He went back across the Jordan to the place where John first baptized, and there he remained. Many came to him and said, John performed many signs, but every, excuse me, John performed no sign. John performed no sign. John was baptizing and preaching repentance. But everything John said about this man was true, and many began to believe in him. So what happens here? Jesus, in the, just before this, Jesus has forgiven a man's sins. And so the Jews are like, you can't do that. You, who do you think you are, you know, um, trying to forgive somebody their sins? Only God can do that. Well, guess what, guys? <laughs> yeah, only God can forgive sins. And, and guess, guess who this is? So um, they pick up these rocks to stone him. And Jesus said, for which of my good works are you going to stone me? You know what? It's time to take a break. So we'll be right back with more from Bible for the with more of Bible Bible with the Barbers. <laughs> don't go away. Don't turn that dial. Thank uh, welcome to our new listeners from um, uh, Stations of the Cross Radio. 877-526-2151 is the number you can call if you wish to make a donation. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. 
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. So we are here um, again. Um, we're looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. And the Jews pick up rocks to stone Jesus. And Jesus says, well, why are you doing this? What, what good work did I do that makes you so angry? And they're, no, you, you claim to be God. And because you claim to be God, that's blasphemy. And we're going we're gonna to stone you for that. So um, Jesus, it's interesting. He answers them. And it, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If it calls them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, can you say that the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world blasphemes because I have said I am the Son of God? What is he referring here to? Okay, in the, your law it says you are gods. It's interesting because in your law, and oftentimes in the Jewish mind, the whole Old Testament was considered the law. And so in in the book of Psalms, um, it says that, um, which Psalm is it? See, your law. Um, um, Sometimes the expression refers to the whole Old Testament. I I said you are God's. A citation of Psalm 82, verse 6. All right? So that's a psalm prayer. And what's happened is the shepherds of Israel in that particular psalm are not being faithful to the Lord. They've been unfaithful. And so the Lord is chastising them. Because it's like I, I've given, I've given you, I've spoken to you, and you're supposed to bring my word to your to the people, and you're not being faithful. So he says you are gods with a small g, because you have the word of God in you, and you are to bring it to others. And this is, we all have this. If we're baptized, we have God living in us. If we're still in the state of grace, and I can never infallibly know if I'm in the state of grace, but I can infallibly know if I desire to be. And if I persevere in that desire, um, I will infallibly be put in the state of grace. So if I am not in the state of grace, Lord, put me in the state of grace. And if I am in the state of grace, keep me there. St. Joan of Arc, thank you for that prayer. And um, we have God living in us because God has chosen to live in us. And even the very fact that he gives us his word, that he, he would speak to us through human words. So it calls them God's to whom the word of God came. So the leaders of the Jews, the, the, the priests of the Old Testament, they were supposed to bring the word of God to the people. And then he goes on, um, and scripture cannot be set aside. It's interesting, in their commentary here, Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch in the Ignatius Bible Study Commentary make, make a triple commentary on that. Scripture cannot be nullified. Well, there are three implications there. Scripture cannot be set aside since it is the, its teaching is as trustworthy and true as God himself. The teachings of Scripture are as trustworthy and true as God himself because God is the primary author. The Holy Spirit is the primary author of all of Scripture. Okay? Two, the Old Testament represented in this context by a psalm has permanent authority even under the New Covenant. So Jesus isn't doing away with the Old Testament. We as Christians can't throw the Old Testament out. It's very important to us. All right? It's still important. It's still God's word. And 
Jesus didn't nullify it. He fulfills it. He fulfills it. And three, the authority of Scripture extends even to individual words, as in the context where Jesus' whole argument rests on the import of a single word, God's, from Psalm 82, verse, verse 6. So every word of Scripture is important, and every word of Scripture is trustworthy, as trustworthy as God himself. So for those who want to sow doubt in Scripture, they're actually sowing doubt in the author of Scripture, and the primary author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. So, and that's important for us. We need to know that. We need to know that Scripture is trustworthy, and there are no errors in Scripture. You know, St. Augustine said, if there appear to be an error, you, you have one of three options here. You might have a bad copy. You might have a bad translation, or there's something that you don't understand. Maybe? Yeah. Um, what's he referring to? Only the original texts are guaranteed to be without error. And that's why scripture scholars are supposed to study the scriptures in their original text. But if you got a bad copy or a bad translation, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of errors. But it's not scripture itself. It's not, it's not what God revealed that has errors in it or contradictions. There are no contradictions in what God revealed. And what God revealed in, in the word, in his written word in scripture, cannot contradict what he created. Okay? So... Scripture doesn't contradict science, and science doesn't contradict Scripture, okay? Science is man studying to understand what God made, all right? And so, um, you know, there's no, there are no scientific, historic, religious, or other errors in Scripture. There, there may be bad copies, made bad translations all over the place, and then there's a lot that we don't understand because God is God and we are not. He's trying to get through to us, but we're kind of thick-headed. And you know what? Sin darkens the intellect and it weakens the will. That's why we want to fight against sin in our life, especially and first against venial sin so that we never fall into mortal sin. But we've already fallen into mortal sin. Then we want to go to confession right away and get rid of the mortal sins, fight against those, and then ask the Lord for the grace to overcome all sin in our life so that our intellects will be clear and we can see what is God's plan and our wills will be strong to choose God, who is our true good. We were made to choose God. We were made for the good. And God is the good we were made for. You know, what did St. Augustine say? You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So we want to rest in the Lord. We want to choose him every moment of every day. Yes, it's a constant effort. It's a constant discipline of our mind and our hearts to keep them focused on the Lord to keep our hearts fixed there where true joy is, in heaven with God, our everlasting joy. You know, we don't, we don't suffer just for the sake of suffering. And Christ is being attacked here by the Jews. They're rejecting him. Why? Because they don't like his gospel. And it's the same today. There are many who don't like the gospel, so they try to change it. Well, you know, you know, that was past times and things have changed and people have changed and no, you know what? Human nature hasn't changed. It's the same, pretty much. We're still sinners. We still try to make excuses. We still try to blame others for our faults. We still try to say it was somebody else's fault. I'm not responsible. Flip Wilson, you know, the devil made me do it. No, actually, the devil didn't make you do it. We don't need the devil's help to sin. Uh, we do need God's help to do good, but we don't need the devil's help to sin. Uh-uh. Flip Wilson was wrong. You know, but, but the point is here, scripture is not going to be set aside. 
Jesus didn't come to set aside the Old Testament, and he didn't come to set aside the prophecies. He came to fulfill it. And that, you know, we Christians are not um, repudiated Jews. We are fulfilled Jews in the sense that, you know, we weren't Jews by birth, but we have been incorporated into the kahal, the church of God. We're, but that's the church that Jesus Christ founded. And, and Christianity, Catholicism, Jesus only founded one church. You know, there was no Protestant denomination before the 1500s. The Protestant denominations are very young in Christianity. They're only 500 years old. Well, it's going on 600 now. But um, yeah, the, the Catholic Church has existed from the beginning. That's the church Jesus founded. Now, you know, unfortunately, he, well, I guess it's not unfortunate. I mean, he came to save sinners, right? So he used sinners to build his church. He uses sinners to govern his church. He uses sinners, you know, to carry on his priesthood, to work. He works in and through the priest. And the priests are men. They're sinners, just like all of us are. But there's only one church, and that church was founded by Jesus Christ. And it's that church that gave us the scriptures. So that church authentically interprets the scripture for us, which scripture tells us. How can I understand if I don't have someone to interpret? In, in the Acts of the Apostles, the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip. And then again in, um, in the letter of Peter, Peter says, no prophecy is a matter of personal interpretation. So there's no prophecy that's a matter of personal interpretation. It's the church has to tell us the authentic meaning of the scripture. And so we have here, Jesus speaking, and he says, you know, if, if your leaders are gods with a little g, why are you saying I blaspheme when I am the son of God? And um, the father consecrated me and sent me into the world. And then he says, the father is in me and I am in the father. And, and they, they just can't know. They can't get this. It's like, no, God, and again, this is a difficult truth, isn't it? The greatest mystery of our faith is the Trinity, that, there, that God is one, there's one God, but in God there's three persons, that he's not a solitude unto himself, but he's a community of love and life. He's a trinity of persons from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is our God. And, and we wouldn't know this except that he revealed it to us. We can't reason to that. We can reason to the fact that there is a God, and he is one, and he is good, and he is beautiful and true, and that he is the author of all goodness and beauty and truth. And... Um, and if we want to know him, as Socrates realized, then we have to live a disciplined, virtuous life. And we have to give up debauchery and self-indulgence. But Jesus came to bring salvation. And so when he comes, his people are expecting a little bit different Messiah than what, and a little bit different of a gospel than what Jesus is preaching but he makes it clear that he's God, and they can't quite wrap their head around how is it possible that a man could claim to be God. And this is a great mystery of our faith. It's not the greatest, as I said, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is one and God is three, is the greatest mystery. But the, the, the incarnation of God, that God became man, he really took to himself a human nature and walked among us as a man, is a great mystery. But what were the credentials he gave? He worked miracles. He forgave sins. He showed us. You know, he could command the, the powers of nature. He could change bread into, into um, his flesh. He could change 
excuse me, he could change water into wine, and he did. And he can change bread and wine into his flesh and blood, which he does. He did at the Last Supper, and he continues to do in every Mass, because every Mass is a participation in that one eternal Paschal mystery of the passion, death, and resurrection and glorification of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where he gives himself to us as food for our souls. And it's a great mystery, but yes, God really walked among us. And this is what the Jews couldn't understand, and they wouldn't accept, that God could possibly come that close. And yet they believed that God was with them in the temple, that the presence of God was there, the glory cloud, the Shekinah, you know, when God was in the, in the temple. And when they were really bad, the Shekinah would leave the temple and then their enemies would come in. And so um, there's that break time coming again. So we want to wrap this up and, and realize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is truly God made man. He really came to save us from our sins and that we need to humble ourselves and accept the truth that he came to teach us. So we'll be back with more of Bible with the Barbers in just a few minutes. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for your prayers and sacrifices and your material support. Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, the 26th day of March. Yesterday was the Feast of the Incarnation, by the way, the Annunciation, March 25th. Um, and, and it was a solemnity, a great feast day in the church. We celebrate the Annunciation of um, the angel Gabriel came to Mary to announce to her that God had chosen her to be his mother. So we are going here. We want to talk about um, whether or not death is the end of the story. And again, as I pointed out, you know, we've looked at the passion of Christ for the last couple of weeks, and in the midst of his passion, there is this joy. Well, where does this joy come from? And I want to refer everyone to um, Article um, 11 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I believe in the resurrection of the body. The resurrection, what is this resurrection all about, and what is this belief in the resurrection? Where does this come from? Okay, and... Um, the Christian creed, the profession of faith in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in God's creative, saving, and sanctifying action culminates in the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead on the last day and in everlasting life. We firmly believe, and hence we hope, that just as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death the righteous will live forever. With the risen Christ, he will raise them up on the last day. And we're supposed to compare that with um, John, the Gospel of John 6, 39 through 40. Christ promises that he will raise up those who believe in him, right? Our resurrection, like his own, will be the work of the Most Holy Trinity. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through the spirit who dwells in you. And that is from Romans 8, 11. And compare that with 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 4, 14, and Philippians 3, 10, and 11. This is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this is, um, you know, some people think Catholics don't know their Bible or don't read their Bible, <laughs> that the Catholic Church doesn't teach things from the scriptural perspectives. Well, read the Catechism. It's interesting. We have a, a priest here, Father Glenn Botten. He's a priest of the... Um, 
personal ordinariate in union with the chair of Peter, former Anglicans who become Christian, who become Catholic. And he said that as a Protestant, he would use the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Yes, this, this Catechism of the Catholic Church here. Um, to prepare his sermons because it's so rooted in Scripture and it explains the Scripture so beautifully and profoundly. But we're looking here at the reality of the resurrection of the dead. You know, it's interesting. How is it that Christ could endure the cross? What was it that made him able to endure the, the tremendous sufferings that he was, well, for one, he was motivated to save us from death you know, to save us from our sins. We, we had sinned and we had fallen away from God and um, all of us had gone astray and we needed someone to bring us back. And in Hebrews 12, 2, it says what? Well, let's go back to Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that in chapter 11 in, uh, in Hebrews, it talks about all of the, our fathers in the faith. So these are the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, in his human nature, Jesus endured the cross for the joy, for the joy, the glory that would be revealed in him. He endured this for the great glory. So Jesus is victorious. He looked beyond that what you can see in time and space. I mean, Calvary looked pretty devastating. It looked pretty much like the end, right? And the apostles are really bummed out, and they're all, most of them weren't even there on Calvary. <laughs> if they were, they were looking on from a great distance. But he, he has this glory that the Father has prepared for him, and he doesn't lose sight of that. He keeps that in mind. He keeps it in mind and we have to incur, we have to you know not worry about the shame of suffering or the shame that you know people make fun of us when we look weak when we look like we're defeated it's okay don't worry about what other people think of us it's like lord please deliver me from the fear of what others think of me of other people's opinions because i want to be able to follow christ even to the cross and so you know, as Christians, that's why Christians throughout the centuries, Catholic Christians have died as martyrs for their faith. And even non-Catholic Christians have died as martyrs for their faith. They're martyrs too. They died for Christ. So everyone who believes in Christ, we need to be, but we need to look ahead to the glory that God has prepared for us, okay? And we have many, many scripture passages that, show us that we are looking for the resurrection of the dead, okay? It says here in the Catechism, paragraph 990, and by the way, this section begins with paragraph 988, and it goes on to, I believe, paragraph 1,000, and maybe even beyond. It actually goes beyond because then it talks about the risen Christ, 
and how are the how are the dead raised and the dying of Christ Jesus dying in Christ Jesus what does that mean and the meaning of Christian death so it goes on um, to paragraph let me get this number for you real quick if I can 1019 so from paragraph 988 to paragraph 1019 of the catechism I really encourage everyone I can't do that whole section of the catechism in this short time but we can all look at it and study it as a preparation for Holy Week, we can't endure suffering without the possibility of joy, all right? And this is why Christ showed us the resurrection, because there is joy, there's hope, and that's it. We hope, you know, we hope in the Lord, and our hope is in the Lord. Our hope isn't in our works. Our hope isn't in our merits. Our hope is in God's mercy, you know? Oh, my God, relying on thy infinite goodness, mercy, and promises, on thy infinite goodness, mercy, and promises, I hope to obtain pardon for my sins, the help of thy grace, and life everlasting. From God, I hope to obtain these things. So the term flesh refers to man in his state of weakness and mortality. The resurrection of the flesh means not only the immortal soul we live, will live on after death, but that even our mortal body will come to life again. Okay, look at Romans 8, 11. So belief in the resurrection of the dead has been an essential element of the Christian faith from its beginning. The confidence of Christians in the resurrection of the dead, believing that we live, all right? We, we, we live on. We don't, death is not the end of the story. How can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14. Christ has been raised from the dead. This is our hope. You know, it's interesting. For those who want to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, well, that's what the early church, that's what the martyrs died to witness to. If they, you know, if it was, if it was just a pretend, if Christ hadn't really raised from the dead physically, bodily, if it was just a spiritual resurrection, well, then what did they die for? Because they died to witness to the bodily resurrection of Christ, that Jesus Christ really raised from the dead, that the tomb was empty on Sunday morning. And by the way, Jesus didn't move the stone away. Remember when the women are coming to the tomb, they're discussing who will move the stone away for us. And what happens? An angel comes and moves the stone away to reveal the empty tomb. The tomb is already empty. Christ is already raised. He didn't need to move the stone in order to come out of the tomb. All right? And the guards are terrified. This angel comes, and this is, I mean, you know, if you saw an angel, you would be terrified. Fall down as dead, right? Every, everybody in the, in the scriptures who's ever seen an angel is temp tempted to worship them. And the angels, if it's an angel, says, no, don't do that. I'm just an angel. The only time when you have that is in the book of Revelation, when John falls down before the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end before Jesus Christ, the Son of God in heaven in his glorified state, Jesus doesn't tell him, don't do that. I'm only a servant like you. But the angels will tell you that. So the guards are terrified. They see the angel move the stone and, they, and the, the body's gone. And the women didn't take it. Nobody took it. In fact, it's gone. This is, so the guards actually witnessed the empty tomb. Whoa. 
and yet now they didn't give witness. They they took a bribe because they weren't sure what to do, and they took a bribe. Hopefully later on they were, you know, converted. I don't know um, if they were converted or not, but hopefully they were. And and this hope in the resurrection was something that God re- gradually revealed to his people in the Old Testament. But by the time the book of Maccabees comes along, what do we have? The king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. That's 2 Maccabees 7, 9. And then it goes on. One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. 2 Maccabees 7.14, and, and then compared to 7.29, and then also Daniel 12.1-13. So it is God who gives them the hope. And this is from the book of Maccabees. This is the Old Testament. One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. What profit does a man show to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? You know, in that in that great play about Thomas More, Man for All Seasons, what does he say to, um, was it Richard Rich who, who <laughs> betrays him for Wales? He said, Rich, what profit does a man show to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? But Rich, for Wales? For Wales? <laughs> we'll be right back with more on the resurrection and our hope. What makes us able to endure suffering with joy? Thank you so much for tuning into Bible with the Barbers, and thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this 26th day of March, 2021. Friday of the fifth week of Lent, and we're looking at the question of whether or not death, you know, death is the end. Is death the end, or is there something beyond it? And as as Christians, we believe in the resurrection, the resurrection of the body, not just the soul, the resurrection of the body, okay? And um, yeah, there were people in Jesus' time who believed in resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't, and remember that story about the they, they bring up that story about the, the woman who was married to seven, seven brothers and she didn't have children with any of them. And so the woman at last, so whose, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, aren't you badly mistaken because you do not understand what it means to rise from the dead. And that in heaven, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage, but we will live like the angels. Not that we will be angels, but we will live like the angels. God will be all in all. And, and we're there to serve the Lord. But We'll be there to praise the Lord for all eternity and to come, you know, deeper knowledge, continuous, infinite, deeper knowledge. We can never know God because God is God and we would have to be God to know God. <laughs> so, but, but Jesus himself says that he is the resurrection and the life. Remember in John, um, he says, John eleven twenty five, when Martha and, you know, Lazarus has died and Martha says, Lord, if you had been there, he wouldn't have died. And, and and even now, whatever the Father you ask, I believe the Father will give you. And, and, and Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die. And the man who lives and believes in me will not die forever. Is it he, who, who lives and believes in me will never die. And I, 
there's a little play on words there, but I can't remember it right now. But the point of it is, he is the resurrection and the life. It is Christ himself who is our resurrection and our life, right? And, and he's given us this pledge of eternal life. And so in the early church, what did I say? You know, the, the question of whether or not Christ really rose from the dead. Well, to be a witness of Christ is to be a res- witness to his resurrection, to have eaten and drunk with him after he rose from the dead. Remember that in Acts of the Apostles one twenty-two and 10.41, and also compare 4.33. So those of us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, he really rose. This wasn't a spiritual, you know, you know and they, no, they weren't expecting it, by the way. They were locked away in a room with closed doors, locked doors. They were terrified that the Jews were going to come and crucify them, have the Romans crucify them all or stone them to death or something. So, it, it, and that was, they had these encounters with the risen Christ. So from the beginning, the Christian faith in the resurrection has met with incomprehension and opposition. Always been a problem. Acts 17, 32, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 13. Misunderstanding, opposition, On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. St. Augustine wrote that, okay? (laughs) It is very commonly accepted that the life of the human body continues in a spiritual fashion after death. But how can we believe that the body, so clearly mortal, could rise to everlasting life? Well, that's it, you know, know, and and Paul, Paul will address that in Corinthians where they say, well, what does a resurrected body look like? And he said, what a nonsensical question. You know, does the grain that you sow in the ground look like the full-blown plant? You know, we won't know until we get there. But the grain is sown in the ground and it dies and then it comes to life. And that's a symbol. That's, that's a, what do you call it? A, a kind of a pro- foreshadowing of the resurrection, that, that whole death life cycle of seeds that die and then come to life. And all of the dead will rise, whether they rise to life or death. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, we're all going to raise from the dead. John 5, 29, and then compare that with Daniel 12, 2. And again, I'm pointing out these scripture passages because I want you to understand the Catholic Catholic Church is quoting from the scriptures. It's explaining to us what the scriptures mean. Anybody can pick up this catechism. It doesn't matter what denomination of Christianity you belong to. Pick it up if you want to fully understand, more deeply understand what the scriptures say. Pick it up and read it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It talks about our life in God. It talks about who God is in himself. And then it goes on to talk about how we are supposed to respond and what our life in God is like and supposed to be like. It's profound and rooted deeply in scripture, rooted deeply, deeply in scripture. Christ is raised with his own body. Remember when he shows himself to his apostles on the night of the resurrection. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Luke 24, 39. But he did not return to an earthly life. So in him, all of them will rise again with their own bodies, which they now bear. But Christ will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body into a spiritual body. Okay? And that's, um, you know, Philippians 3.21 and 1 Corinthians 15.44. And that was the Lateran Council number four is quoting that. 
And then it goes on to give us that quote from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 37, verses 42, 52, and 53. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of a body do they come? You foolish man. This is Paul writing in Corinthians. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The dead will be raised imperishable. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 7. 35 through 37, 42, 52, and 53. So that whole about the resurrection, the resurrection. Yes, we will have a resurrected body. And again, what is the joy? The joy is that we will share in the glory of God. That, that just as Jesus Christ has a risen glorified body, we too are going to have a risen. He's going to change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Yeah. Jesus, this is what the scripture says. And it, it exceeds our imagination. It exceeds our imagination and understanding. But it is accessible to faith. And that's why we want to um, really pray, give up our sins, and meditate on the word of God. And, and again, Jesus, what does he say in the Eucharist? In the Eucharist, we already get a foretaste of Christ's transfiguration of our bodies, right? Just as the bread that comes down just as bread that comes from the earth after God's blessing has been invoked upon it is no longer ordinary bread, but Eucharist formed of two things, the one earthly and the other heavenly. So too, our bodies will partake of the Eucharist that our, our bodies, which partake of the Eucharist are no longer corruptible, but possess the hope of resurrection. And that's a quote from St. Irenaeus against heresies. So that's early church teaching. All right that he's, he's, he's comparing in the Eucharist, we receive Christ, the bread that comes from the earth, the wheat and the, and the wine that comes from the earth are transfigured and transformed. They're changed, completely changed. Jesus is not present in the bread and the wine. Okay. That's not Catholic teaching. The bread and the wine at the consecration of mass are totally changed into the substance of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the risen, glorified body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, okay? The risen and glorified into his substance. And so it's no longer bread and wine. Yes, it appears like it. Those are accidents. Those are called species. But it's really Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And why do we say that? Because Jesus said over the bread, this is my body. And he says over the wine, this is the chalice of my blood. And, and the priest says those exact words. He quotes Christ's words from the Last Supper. Why? Because it's not the priest who changes bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. It's Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, acting in and through the priest, who changes the bread and wine into his own body and blood at every Mass. And this is a prefigurement of the reality that, yes, Jesus can change bread and wine into his own body and blood, and he can change us into living, living images of himself. And he can share with us his glory. And he can give us a glorified body. And this is our hope. And we need to meditate on heaven. We need to meditate on the hope that's waiting for us. Okay? 
and we have definitively at the last day, at the end of the world, indeed the resurrection of the dead is closely associated with Christ's parousia. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And so in, um, in Colossians 2.12 and then 3.1, Paul writes, And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And this is the whole point. We are to seek the things that are above. Yes, we have to live in this world. And there's suffering and sorrow and trials and, you know, pandemics and fake pandemics and, you know, governments that want to lock people down and lie to them about the seriousness of an illness or whatever in order to keep people in fear. But we are children of God. We are children of hope. We are children of the resurrection. We are children of the light and of the life. And we want to mirror Christ. And we want to mirror the hope that Christ brings to the world. That we don't have here on earth a lasting city. We have an eternal resting place in heaven with God. And God shares with us his glory. This is the promise of the resurrection. So, While we meditate on the passion of Christ in these days, let us not lose sight of the glory that God wishes to reveal in us. He wishes to share with us his glory. He wants to raise us from the dead. Death is not the end of the story. Christ was raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. A friend of mine once said her dad used to say to her, Jesus got up from the dead bed. (laughs) Yeah, he rose from the tomb. He didn't stay dead. So we want to really focus in on this last week of of that. Yes, we, we meditate on the passion, but always remembering the glory that God wishes to share with us, always with a view of heaven, that we are called to live with Christ in heaven. And that will give us the joy to bear the sorrows of the present moment. What was it Paul said? I consider the sufferings of the moment as nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in me. And he also said, for me, life is Christ, therefore death is gain. So we want to gain Christ through death to sin, death to ourselves and our own will, to live for God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that God will be glorified in all that we do for the praise of the glory of God's name, that his kingdom would come, that his will be done. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. Uh, Next Friday is Good Friday. I don't know if we're broadcasting live, but if we are, we'll see you then.